It's good to see all of you here this morning. And before we open the Word together, we want to uh, seek the Lord and pray for His help that we might understand His Word and then be prepared to go and do it. So let's pray together. Father, as we open Your Word, it's with hope and expectation again that You will not only give us a right understanding of it, but that You will empower our very souls to receive it as the nourishment it is that we might grow by it, to receive it as the wisdom that it is that we might understand our lives and world as You have intended it, that we might receive its instruction that, in order that we might obey it and put it into practice. And we know that Your Holy Spirit has been sent wonderfully, graciously, sent by Christ Himself so that we would not have to live this life as orphans. And thank You, Holy Spirit, that You have revealed Yourself to us as the Comforter, the very One who comes alongside us in order that we may have strength, that we might know what we need to know, that we might sense Your presence, walk the path of this life with the confidence that You are with us. And so we thank You, our great God, that You have promised never to leave us or forsake us. As we gather today, there are so many cares and pressures, anxieties that we're feeling, experiences that have pressed us far beyond our capacity to understand. Some even feel like they have been pressed beyond their capacity to exist. Please, Lord God, give us life in this Word. Give us hope through Your truth. Allow the fellowship of your people that we are enjoying here in this place to, to give us that kind of tangible encouragement that we're in need of. And all of those things, Father, that press our hearts down and, and weigh our minds down, we ask that you would provide relief. We might believe your word as you kindly say, cast all of your cares on me because you are my personal concern. So by faith, we relinquish our grip upon these things, and we cast them on you, and we open our hands that we might receive the good gifts that you have prepared for us on this day, and the ministry of your word is one of them. So with eagerness now, we look to you, in Jesus' name, amen. We're coming back to the Gospel of Mark today. And I'm excited to return, but having said that, chapter 10 is actually going to give us an opportunity to take a couple little side trails. Now, they're directly related, uh, but we're going to need to do more than just look at Mark 10 over the next several weeks. The first 12 verses that we're going to unpack today will actually send us all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. Jesus is going to address a very tender and significant topic, and that topic is divorce. I'll say more about that in just a moment. Then in verses 13 and following, he's going to address little children. And I think on the heels of a couple of weeks of looking at some of the scriptures that uh, instruct us concerning God's intention and design for marriage, that we also take the opportunity in verses 13 and following to just consider some things related uh, to making disciples. We also call that parenting. And so chapter 10 doesn't really say this is God's word concerning 
bringing up children in the world. But, he, but Jesus does speak of the little ones, and we see his heart unfolded, and I think it would be good for us to take a couple of weeks uh, just to consider some things about children, because there are a lot of them around here. And if your eyes were closed or your head was down and you didn't see the mass exodus a few minutes ago, just after the service, open your eyes again because they'll flood the lobby again and, and maybe knock some of you over, uh, which we hope not. And then later in the chapter, Jesus is actually going to go back to some of the themes of discipleship and the cost of following him. And I think in one final message in September uh, we're going to have an opportunity to just look at some things related to the stewardship of our lives and in particular some of those material and financial resources. So we have kind of a, a, a really neat opportunity in these next several weeks to look at things that are very near and dear to our hearts and today we want to begin with Jesus' teaching concerning marriage. Go to Mark 10 if you're not there already. I'd like to read the first 12 verses uh, because these verses in Mark 10 are actually going to take us back to the beginning and the title of the sermon makes an allusion to that from the beginning of creation. Mark 10, you follow along as I begin reading. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? Now notice verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What I want you to notice here at the outset is the context in which this question is asked, and this is going to shape our own understanding and application of these truths to the, the world we live in and our own households. And there is clearly a distortion of God's plan for marriage. It's being brought to the forefront, and I want you to notice, first of all, the wicked intent of this question. You say, wicked intent, I missed that. Go back to verse 2. Mark tells us, very specifically, that the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I think even this wicked intention is important for our understanding of the kind of answer Jesus gives, him, gives them and the way he goes about this. That little phrase to test means to prove in either a good or bad sense, but in this particular passage, it has reference to obtaining information from Jesus in order that they might use it against him. 
They're posing a question, not really looking for theological or biblical clarification, as they have been doing to this point. They're looking for ways to undermine his ministry, to overthrow this present teaching authority that he has been establishing over the last months and years. They're looking perhaps even for a way to bring him down. Now, you think about the last time the issue of divorce came up in Mark's gospel, and it was back in chapter 6 when John the Baptist was ultimately beheaded. And Mark had made reference to this in chapter 6, verse 18, where John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. And I shared with you some of the history there of how Herod fell in love, immorally so, uh, with his brother's wife and persuaded her to divorce him and marry him, and that's exactly what he had done. And John the Baptist was very bold to stand up in the face of all of this and say, this is unlawful. You're accountable to God for what you've done. And it ultimately cost him his life. So here in the region of Judea, as Mark has noted, and beyond the Jordan, guess whose jurisdiction Jesus is ministering in? Herod's. So there's no doubt that part of their question in a public setting would be to stir up the, the political resistance against him, maybe even hoping that word would get all the way back to Herod, and Herod would say, we're not doing this again, and maybe even take Jesus' head off as he had done with John the Baptist. But look again at the text. Their question is, is it lawful? Is it permitted? And this is a term that's used in other places in the New Testament with reference to things that there, there's a bit of uncertainty. Can you do it in this setting? Can you do it in that setting? Should you not do it in this way? Is, is it permitted in another way? And so they are asking this particular question with reference to divorce. Now, if you compare this account to Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 19, verse 3, Matthew actually records that the Pharisees came to him, testing him. He uses the same terminology there. And he includes three additional words in this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And I may have opportunity to say a little bit more about this later, but in, in that particular cultural setting, nobody was arguing at that particular point about whether divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality was legitimate. That, that was a settled question. So from the most conservative to the most progressive, they all actually agreed on that point. The particular point that these Pharisees are raising for Jesus would be the extent of causes. Are there reasons beyond sexual immorality or adultery that would be permissible? And that brings us to the second part of this. It is a divisive question in a divided context. Now, these Pharisees likely fell into two different schools of thinking. It's a reminder to me, even as I read a little bit of this history, that there probably has never been a time when the issue of divorce has not evoked strong opinion and emotion from those who are either living through it or debating it. And, and this is something that I've prayed in preparation for today because I don't, I don't know of one family here that isn't touched, at least indirectly, by this issue. And some of you have lived through it. You and your spouse went through the horrors of this. Some of you grew up in homes where you watch parents divorce. And I want to make sure that, that we all recognize that Christ's heart is tenderly inclined toward those who go through this agony. But the word is still clear. And so we're going to do our best to 
to be clear where the Bible is clear and where there may be some uncertainties, then we need to extend a lot of grace to others who may have different opinions. But we're going to let God's Word rule our hearts in this, not our experiences, not our emotions, not our opinions, right? So let's do our best to listen to God. Now, the disagreement had to do with a couple of particular words all the way back in Deuteronomy. Would you turn to Deuteronomy 24 with me for just a moment? This is the, this is the passage that the Pharisees are going to refer to in just a moment. I think it's important for us to take a look at this. Moses wrote this book, as he did all the first five books of the Bible, and in this particular section, he writes, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency... And you can underline that or just make a note of those two words, some indecency. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." So those two little words, some indecency, became kind of that fulcrum, that, that point of pressure that divided people into two basic schools of thinking. What does some indecency have reference to? That's what they were all trying to wrestle with. Well, the more conservative school of Shammai, who was uh, a very well-known and highly regarded uh, rabbi or teacher in the first century B.C., so the hundred years before Christ came, Shammai, you can see his name there, on the left, he taught his followers that a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written because he hath found in her indecency in anything. And so that's, that's the little different quotation, but it is still Deuteronomy 24. So he was of the opinion that except for adultery, may not divorce her. Now the school of Hillel, Hillel was another highly regarded, respected teacher, again, first century B.C., he was promoting the idea and his followers that a man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish, and that would be an example. Some indecency had a much broader interpretation and application. And that probably was akin to what was taking place back in Moses' day where this, uh, this writing from Deuteronomy 24 is intended to limit the abuses of a bill of divorcement. And so the school of Hillel had a very broad interpretation of those words, some indecency. But here's what I would want each of us to come back to, and the words of one commentator are very helpful with, with understanding Deuteronomy 24 and its intent. It was originally intended not to encourage divorce, but rather attempting to preserve an equitable ruling in the unfortunate event of divorce. And the question of the Pharisees here in, in the gospel, the reference to Deuteronomy 24 no longer serves to limit the ill effects of divorce, but rather as a pretext for divorce. If a man finds anything indecent in his wife, 
As we have seen, the pretext range from adultery alone to the most feeble of excuses, including a wife's failure in simple household duties or failure to please her husband, as did another woman. You see, Deuteronomy 24, I believe, was written, as many authors and and scholars have stated, to provide a degree of protection for a woman who'd been repudiated by a husband and was in a position of vulnerability and could be sorely abused through the whole legal games that were being played in that day. Men who would put them away and because there was no written contract might later say, well, I didn't really mean it or now I want her back. And these women were treated more like property than human beings created in the image of God. It's interesting to me that when Jesus asked the question, what did Moses command, the part of Moses that these Pharisees go back to is actually this particular uh, passage from Deuteronomy. Yes, it's in the Bible, but something that was given to limit the abuse of divorce. Its primary function had been to provide protection. I think it's important for us to remember that In our day, this remains a a much debated topic, doesn't it? And there are similar schools of thought that begin to emerge. And I'm sure if we could take a a quick survey here, we would find a, a spectrum of ideas and opinions. Some of them would be firmly rooted in the Scriptures, and some would be a little bit of an amalgamation of, of scriptural teaching and understanding, and then perhaps a, a personal experience or a particular situation that you knew of or, or were aware of. There'd be all kinds of opinions and ideas on this. And I want you to notice the wisdom of our Lord that emerges at this particular point, and I think it's in, helpful for us that we, too, learn to go back to the beginning. Because there's a clearly given divine intention for marriage, and Jesus points everybody to the beginning. And so he asks a foundational question, what did Moses command you? And their answer was, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And that's true. We just read that. They're referring to Deuteronomy 24. But is that really the command that Jesus had in mind? I don't think so. And here's part of the reason, because in response to their suggestion that Deuteronomy 24 is the guiding command, Jesus says, you know, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. And isn't it interesting that he doesn't say because of their hardness of heart, he says it's because of your hardness of heart. He's actually bringing the weight of God's word to bear upon their lives because they, like their forefathers, are looking for the exceptions and the loopholes and just trying to figure this thing out and give themselves maximum latitude to get what they want. And so he includes the present generation of Pharisees with the group whose hearts are hardened. He's confronting unbiblical thinking even though at this point it masquerades as religious interest. The Pharisees, the scholars of the day, the keepers of God's law. Listen to the words of one author who goes back in history and digs up some things, and he writes, the calloused attitude which could be taken in regard to divorce is well illustrated by the counsel of a respected teacher. This is about 200 B.C., where he actually wrote, this is a Jewish teacher, 
If she, that is your wife, go not as you would have her go, cut her off and give her a bill of divorce. And he begins to use actually some of that Old Testament Genesis language we're going to come to in just a moment. Cut her off. It's a reflection of the the severing of that one flesh relationship that God first spoke of and that Jesus will go to in just a moment. It's a good point for us to just stop and consider... Are our hearts becoming callous in any way? Hardened, whether to a spouse or even to God's design for marriage? Callous to the point of saying, you know, I wonder if there are ways out. I wonder if the Word of God could even be configured or interpreted or if I could look at it through a particular lens where there would would be a, a biblical warrant for what I really want to do. What's particularly challenging for us is when we're in the middle of difficult circumstances and and what married couple hasn't hit those hard moments. Some of you say, but you have no idea of the disappointment, the frustration that I live with. You have no idea what it's like to live with a wicked fool. Some of you would say, rightly so, my spouse has hurt me again and again and again. I just cannot imagine living longer like this. I think it's important that we bring our hearts to the Lord and submit them to God's Word. And this is where Jesus takes these who are, in fact, hard-hearted. Because they're not looking to find life in God's Word. They're looking for loopholes in God's Word that would somehow give them a a spiritual covering, as it were, a religious uh, shelter to do, at the end of the day, what they want to do. And so here's the clear command that, that Jesus takes us back to. And he says simply, from the beginning of creation, from the beginning of creation, it was a particular way. So what is that? Well, first of all, he quotes from Genesis 1. He goes all the way back to the fact that God made them male and female. And if you read Genesis 1.27, you come to this glorious moment where God, in concert as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit determines to create man. And verse 27 says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. The cultural context of Jesus' day includes this this hardness that He's identified, but it was being demonstrated every day in the way the male population treated the female population. Historians tell us that in Jewish law, power over marriage and divorce lay predominantly in the hands of men. A woman's place in Judaism depended largely on her relationship to a man, whether as her father or as her husband, even as her son. Women really had been relegated to a position as second class, and that's some of what Jesus is about to correct by taking them back to the beginning. I know some of you ladies feel like you're second class. And maybe that's been a family thing where you felt that, maybe growing up under their father who was a a sinful chauvinist, or maybe you're married to a man who treats you in that particular way, or it's just part of the society that, or the community that you're a part of, where you just feel like, as a woman, I'm, I'm just not as good as the boys. Well, you're not getting that from the Lord Himself, and you're not going to find that in the Bible. Are boys different from girls? Sure, in some really marvelous ways, but Difference is not the same as inequality. Those distinctions of 
of gender and role and even those passions and the way we're wired up as individuals, those all come from the good and wise hand of the God who created us. And so Jesus is actually addressing one of the cultural idols of that particular day, and that is the boys thought they were running the show, and they weren't. You know who was running the show? God. And He's still running it. It's a good point for each of us to consider right now. Who ultimately is in charge of this world we live in? And you know, it's not the boys are, the girls are issue. It's the God who created all that is. He's in charge. And are we actually going to submit to Him? So Jesus goes back to this particular point of creation. It's God who made them male or female. And so according to Jesus, it is neither man nor woman who controls marriage specifically, but rather God who is the Lord of marriage. And as followers of Christ, we need to wrestle long and hard with this. Who is Lord of my marriage? Who is Lord of my marriage? Is it the God who created you, who called you to follow Him, the God who laid down His life for you at the cross of Calvary, who shed His blood in order to pay the debt of your sin so that you can be forgiven forever? Or are you going to be Lord of your marriage, Lord of your life? In many ways, our day is no different. There's certainly a a vein of male chauvinism alive and well in our world today. And sometimes it cloaks itself under religious teaching, sometimes even out of the Bible. That breaks my heart because I just think that men should be strong in so many ways, but they should never be bullies. There's never biblical warrant, men, for us to be chauvinistic, to suppress or oppress the ladies that God has brought into our lives, whether it be a wife or a daughter or a sister or a mother, whatever relationship it is, they are created as our equals. So I, I'm aware of that, as you are. But there are other veins, cultural veins, that have been opened. They're now deep and wide that because they reject, their, they reject the truth that there is a God who created us, there's all kinds of suggestions and even confusion today about what gender means, what it's about. And, and what if I don't like the gender I was born with biologically, then don't I have the right to decide I can change it, I can switch it, I can even float back and forth between all kinds of things around us culturally that are indicators, we are not actually under the lordship of the Creator. And whether it's done in the name of religion, twisting and distorting, even perverting the Scriptures themselves, or sometimes just in the name of cultural wokeness, as if our generation actually has more wisdom than any other generation preceding it. Like, we finally got some things figured out. That's just raw arrogance. But we want to justify all kinds of aberrations and perversions of what God created in the beginning. I love to meditate on this thought just that God created us and gave us life. Have you thought about that lately? What does it mean that God created you? 
that adds such significance and value to your life that you and I can't even begin to estimate what it means that this sovereign God, this eternal God, this God who had no beginning and who has no end, out of His perfect wisdom, as we were just singing a few minutes ago, formed us in His image. I've told you before about the dog we own. She's a beautiful German shepherd. And, and I sometimes look at her and I just think, that she is a marvel of God's creation. But she's not created in God's image as you and I are, created in God's image, created to know Him personally, to engage forever in relationship with Him, that God breathed into us the breath of life and we became living souls. That gives us dignity and worth. It gives our lives eternal significance. And even those brief 70 to 80 years, some of you may get a few more, some of you will get less, but these days of life we have on planet Earth earth are very few in, in, in terms of their relationship to the eternal life that our Creator has given us. And, and how marvelous it is to think that we've been created by this God. We are not the product of random chance, but we have been specially designed and created by the God of the universe. Is He Lord of your life, Lord of your marriage today? Well, Jesus says more. He not only quotes Genesis 1.27, but now he goes to Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus is quoting the words of Moses from Genesis 2.24, and I believe this is the command he had in mind first when he said, what did Moses command you? Do you know, if you go back to Genesis 2.24 and you look at the word therefore, you have to tie it to everything that precedes it to that point. Do you know Genesis 2.24 is the first point of theological application in all the Bible? Now, there's truth that precedes it that's really important, but it's the first time God himself, through Moses, steps into the middle of this whole historical account of how the world got here, of how you and I got here, and he says, therefore, that is, because I've created you in this way and for these purposes, you ought to do these things. And the first command actually comes to the male side of the human population. Leave father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That term hold fast is what stands most simply and clearly in contradiction to this whole notion that Shammai and Hillel were wrestling with concerning divorce. Hold fast at its heart just means you need to be glued together. So I want you to think about glue for a moment. And I want you to think about the fact that while we are commanded as individuals to hold fast to one another, it's God Himself who initially put two people together. How do we do this? I just want you to start thinking about the, the, all the areas of life that God intends to bring one man, one woman together so that they would be one flesh. It's holistic, isn't it? I mean, there's actually not one area of your life that is unaffected by this. By the way, did you know that our intern, Andrew Smith, and his now fiance Bethany, were engaged officially Wednesday night? Yeah, woohoo. So they're doing what thousands and thousands of people before them have done. 
they looked at life and made an assessment that it would be better together than apart. And we agree with you. Andrew, you will be a better man if you take her to be your wife. But part of what they're going to do is, is to figure out what it looks like to be one flesh. And some of you who've been married a long time are still working on it. Some of you have been through the pain of, of separating. You felt the tear of that one flesh relationship. And there's not one area of our lives that are unaffected by what God does when He, first of all, glues people together, and then He calls us to hold fast. It's like He says, you need to keep gluing yourselves together. I was thinking about this over the last couple of days, and it, it really begins, even if you think in terms of Genesis, and Lord willing, next week we're actually going to take more time to unpack it, but just let me suggest a few things to you today. When you think in terms of holding fast as a as a husband and wife, you need to be thinking in terms of, first of all, are you holding fast to the same God? It's part of the reason that, that the Lord clearly says in the New Testament, you should not be unequally yoked together in marriage. Some of you were saved after the marriage relationship began, and maybe your spouse wasn't converted, maybe never. But that creates a lot of tension, and, and you want to be devoted to God, and your spouse wants to be devoted to something or some other God, and it's all but impossible, isn't it? Prayer is a place that we need to be glued together, holding fast as we come before the Lord, making our requests known to Him, submitting our hearts, seeking His will and, and guidance together. We don't do that independently. We do that together. Communication. That's at the heart of maintaining a glued relationship I've appreciated the, the writings and teaching of a Christian author named Winston Smith, and I would highly recommend uh, a book he has written on marriage. He writes, honest communication doesn't mean saying the first thing that comes to mind. The goal is always to speak the truth in love with the purpose of building up the other. Exaggerations, trait names, mind reading, and shaming are typical ways that couples distort the truth and communicate destructively. But listen to this next line. Honesty that builds relationship affirms God's love for our spouses and is based on a careful understanding of them and is sensitive to the timing of our words. And I think even here, there's, there's something of this great mystery of, of two becoming one that is a revelation of God's love for us. And so he intends that, that holding fast in the realm of communication where you remain committed to his lordship and committed to one another. In the realm of work, Genesis 1 and 2 has a lot to say about that, actually. Both were created to exercise dominion over the earth. Now, Adam was given the primary point. He's kind of like the point man in this thing. He's going to tend the earth and dress it and keep it and, and improve it. But his wife is created as his helper, his business partner, if you will. It doesn't mean that if you go to work in two different places, you're out of God's will, but it does, need, it does remind us that we need to be glued together with respect to the work we're doing in the world. And then finally, sexual intimacy. That's exactly where Genesis 2.25 speaks to us. After Moses says, Therefore a man shall leave father and mother, hold fast to his wife, they two shall be one flesh. He actually makes this profound observation, and these two were naked and not ashamed. 
And even that sexual intimacy, as it is rightly enjoyed in the context of marriage and marriage alone, as it is rightly practiced, is designed to be an expression ultimately of God's love and of your commitment, the two of you coming together as one flesh before Him. Now, coming out of that, though, let's go back to what Jesus says. He not only quotes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, but go back to Mark 10 and look with me, please. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What a mystery that is. It's an awesome truth. As one author writes, it lifts marriage from being a mere contract of mutual convenience to an ontological status. You know what ontological has to do with? That's just the nature of reality. It's a big fancy word, but it just has to do with this. This is reality. God's design is the reality for our world today. And, and while society at large has kind of assumed the right to, to decide for itself, individuals do it every day personally, that, that self-expression, that self-autonomy, communities and cultures do it and say, no, we think we know what is best. God is ultimately the one who is in charge, and He has said marriage is not merely a contract of mutual convenience. It is a one-flesh relationship designed to reveal God. This author goes on to say, it is not merely that one flesh should not be separated. It cannot. Not when God puts it together. And Jesus' comment that they are no longer two underlines this concept. They're no longer two independent beings who may choose to go their own way, but a single indivisible unit. And again, in its context, and Jesus is not addressing the situation of what if one spouse commits adultery or sexual sin? We'll, we'll talk about that, I trust, in the weeks to come. That act actually does break the one flesh relationship. But that's not what these Pharisees have come to Jesus to talk about. They're talking about everything on the spectrum from, you know what, I just don't like her anymore. She just kind of irritates me. Or we're, we're just not getting along. Or you know what, she keeps burning my dinner. School of Hillel. I'm not exaggerating that. That's, that's actually some of the examples that are written there. So Jesus is addressing that section of thinking in the, in the minds of these legalists who are looking for the loopholes to get out. They want to talk about causes for divorce, and he wants to bring it back to when God makes you one, you hold fast to each other. Because God has glued the two together, making them one. No human being should seek to separate those two. I was thinking, too, how the nature of this God-created reality militates against everything from plural marriage, and God did not intend for that ever, ever, and let me pause there because there are some who say, well, you know, he, he seems to have blessed some of those Old Testament saints. He never, you, you cannot find it explicitly stated or demonstrated that God's blessing was on them because they multiplied wives. As a matter of fact, you can make a strong case studying all the way from the patriarchs through David and Solomon that multiplying wives is exactly what created, uh, created significant problems and deep sin issues, generational sin issues. So what God did in Genesis 1 and 2 not only militates against plural marriage, it would, it, would, it would militate against open marriage. 
It doesn't matter if you and your wife say, well, we just reached an agreement. You know, we just, we, we love each other, but we also want to be with other people. Not if you are under the lordship of God. That's immorality. It also militates against homosexual marriage. It would militate against any other alternative to one male and one female becoming a single, indivisible unit. That's God's plan. The other option is to remain single. Now, why does God join two different but equally valuable people together? Why join them together? Well, that's what we're going to spend the entire time next week looking at. But in brief, he does it for relationship before him, partnership together in the exercise of dominion, and in procreation, and, and honestly, just the enjoyment of life. There's a whole beautiful world that opens up in that one flesh design of God. And the New Testament elevates Christian marriage to such extraordinary significance that when Paul says that it is actually not just a matter of one man and one woman coming together before the Lord, but one Christian husband and Christian wife coming together, that they may dramatize the relationship of Jesus and the church. And I hope we'll have time to touch on that next week. So Jesus' big point then in verse 9, if you look at the text, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. End of discussion. They want to get into all the little nuances of, you know, what Shammai said or Hillel said, and Jesus just kind of like shut the whole thing down and said, it's not even a biblical discussion in this context. So as we begin to think this thing through, though, the essential thrust of Christ's teaching is that marriage is intended, is intended and instituted by God with a certain inviolability. It's a sacred institution. It's a sacred covenant. And Jesus does not think, as another author writes, he does not conceive of marriage on the grounds of its dissolution, or ways that it could be dissolved, but rather on the grounds of its architectural design and purpose. And that's what you and I need to go back to. And again, I'm well aware several of you have shared heart-rending stories of what you personally have experienced or the home you grew up in. I, I know that. And please know God's heart. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's not the end all of your usefulness for God on planet earth. But the intent of Jesus' teaching is not to shackle those who fail in marriage with, with debilitating guilt. No, as this author goes on to write, the question is not whether God forgives those who fail in marriage. The answer to that question is assured by the Lord versus like all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. There is, after all, no instance in Scripture of an individual seeking forgiveness and being denied it by God. But here it is. The question in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of Christ to discipleship in marriage. In marriage, as in other areas to which the call of Christ applies, will we seek relief in what is permitted or commit ourselves to what is intended by God and commanded by Christ? Will we sunder the divine union of two become one flesh? Or will we honor and nurture marriage as a gift and creation of God? And you know, even for some of you who've experienced this, and right now you're just, you're kind of a, a basket case of emotions, like, oh, wow, this is, I wasn't expecting this. 
can you just rest in the Lord? And even if there's sin in your past, praise God Jesus died and shed his blood to pay for all of it, right? And wherever you are right now, at this very moment, can you just humbly submit to the lordship of your creator once again and say, oh God, I really do believe you've created me and designed me for good purposes. And there's some things in the past that you and I have talked about before and I've asked your forgiveness and you've given it. Would you just strengthen me to go forward in faith and honor you with where I am what I have, the relationships I'm a part of now. Every one of us can make that commitment, right? There's so much more. And that's one of the things about preaching and teaching through this. I recognize there's so, this actually probably raised more questions than an answer today. But I hope what's clear for all of us, if you go back to the beginning, God had a good and wise design and plan in place. And that's where we start. That's where we even start to have the discussions about can we, should we, would we. It's our starting point. So really, today, this, this is where we end. Will, will we individually form and live by our own ideas regarding marriage? And if the answer to that is yes, then you should humbly go back to this word and say, is that really my place? Because God says, no, it's not. It's my place. I'm Lord. And so the second part of that is, will we believe and practice God's timeless truth regarding marriage? Because all of us can do that, regardless of what's in our past. So much of this really does come down to, are we going to let God be God, or are we going to try to be our own God? And anytime you and I try to become God, we inevitably make a royal mess of things, don't we? Let's bow together and respond in prayer, respond in obedience. We live in a day that views marriage as unnecessary or disposable. Many see it as an outdated tradition. Some even see it as something rooted in patriarchal oppression. But God's word gives us a different perspective, doesn't it? And can we all just yield ourselves right now to the authority of God as our creator? And if his words have pierced your heart in a particular way, maybe revealed sin that needs to be confessed to him, just do that right now. I remind you often that if we confess our sins, as God himself has said, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You confess his part is to forgive and cleanse. Let him do it. Maybe the Holy Spirit has revealed to you that you're more like the Pharisees. Even in your present situation, you've, you actually have been looking for a way out. Scouring the scriptures for loopholes, maybe even looking at a passage like Deuteronomy 24 to justify the, the hardness of heart and bitterness that has grown. You say, well, you know, I'm, I'm better than those guys because they were divorcing their wives over burnt food. But if you're honest, are your reasons much better? Maybe you're saying we just don't see eye to eye anymore. Just doesn't seem to be working out. And there's no sin at the root of this that has actually destroyed 
the covenant relationship you have with your spouse. It's just you kind of want your own way if you're really honest. Oh, you need to submit that to the Lord right now. Say, God in heaven, forgive me. I submit to you. I submit to your plan, to your design, and, and by your grace, I want to commit myself afresh to oneness, to fulfilling this high and holy design for my marriage. Will you do that right now? We're more like these Pharisees than we would ever want to admit, more like Herod than we would ever dare acknowledge. We cherish self more than we cherish God and his word. And we value our autonomy and independence more than we value the partnership that God has created us for with another human being. God in heaven, will you seal to our hearts your word, your wisdom? Will you guard us from our own foolish conclusions and thoughts? Guard us from our own wicked plans and strategies, even to twist and abuse your word in order that we might get what we want. Would you cause us as individuals and as a church family to be committed to your good and perfect way? We humbly submit ourselves to you, our creator and our redeemer, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.